From an early age, I had seen a lot of alcoholism in my family. As a child, even though that could all be really scary, I still was very intrigued by like what alcohol could do. It's like, this thing's very bad, but I definitely want it. And so then when I started drinking, my brain was definitely not wired to be like, okay, you've had enough, now you should stop. That's not what happens to my brain or my body. It needs as much as possible. I mean, I think if I had continuously drank throughout my 20s, I probably would be dead now. I spent a lot of my 20s not only drinking, but also sober because I was in and out of the program. And I think those moments helped me get some perspective at times. And I think it was from that that I was able to have enough of uh, mindfulness to be able to think about where I wanted my life to go. And so I made that decision to say, okay, here's how I'm going to show people that I know how to cook and that I can do this and I can do this restaurant business thing. And I'll start by showing people what I want to do, which is grow my own things and make food from them. That is what I do. And that's what I love to do. And it's an expression of myself. And I love cooking. That's Ileana Regan. And this is the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how goes it? This is the digital projection, the ones and zeros audio version of me, Rich Roll, the host of this podcast you consciously chose to listen to today, for which I am eternally grateful. So today we're going to talk about food. We're going to talk about life. And we're going to talk about art, food, life, and art, food as art, and life as art projected through both food and the written word. Here's the thing. Some people have a gift, but it is the rare individual that has two such gifts, distinct and yet equally extraordinary. Ileana Regan just so happens to be one such life form. A self-taught chef and author, she's overcome quite the set of life obstacles, including substance abuse, uh, to experience a special moment right now, celebrated for both her culinary and literary acclaim. At 15, Ileana landed her first restaurant gig, washing dishes, and basically never looked back. Leaning on the rustic experiences of her Midwestern upbringing, she pioneered a unique locavore style of cooking, somewhat akin to that of Rene Redzepi of Noma, perhaps the world's most famous chef, that is deeply connected to the natural surroundings, emphasizing farm-to-table and foraged foods, and all set in this homestead aesthetic. Her approach landed her a Michelin star six years in a row for her Chicago restaurant, Elizabeth, and fawning accolades from some of the world's most celebrated chefs, people like David Chang, who dubs her one of the best chefs he's ever known, and uh, Red Zeppi himself. This past summer, Ileana published Burn the Place, a book the New York Times describes as perhaps the definitive Midwestern drunken lesbian food memoir. Uh, in a glowing profile, The New Yorker echoes this sentiment, calling it a thrilling, disquieting memoir of addiction and coming of age. And personally, I love a good addiction yarn. And 
this truly is one of the best. It's so widely acclaimed, in fact, the book made the 2019 National Book Awards long list for nonfiction. Now 10 years sober, Ileana's passion has made an unlikely turn, not in the predictable direction of building a culinary empire, but rather towards a remote forest of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where Ileana, along with her wife Anna and three dogs, have converted a cabin on 150 acres into Milkweed Inn, where they serve small groups of just 10 people over weekends between May and October with her new gatherer, Deep Nature Cuisine. Ileana's story is super captivating, and I've got a handful more I want to say about her before we dive in. But first... We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to 
the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. So let me count the ways I adore Ileana. One thing you're going to soon realize is that Ileana speaks with a very soft, gentle tone, but that tonality belies the beast within because make no mistake, Ileana is incredibly strong. My friend, Jeff Gordonier, you might remember him from episode 453. He's the guy who writes about food and culture for Esquire and the New York Times. And he's also the person who originally turned me on to Ileana and her amazing book and made the introduction. Jeff calls her a wolf. And I think that is appropriate. She is quite the force of nature. So this is a conversation about a love of food, a love of foraging and the great outdoors. It's about identity and sexual politics, about a little girl who longed to be a boy growing up gay in an intolerant community. And it's about alcoholism, how Ileana transformed from somebody who once ran away from the cops in handcuffs, would have sex in bar bathrooms and used her car keys to bump cocaine into this sober, stable, married, phenom of knife and pen, a celebrated author, and a woman who, who really made her mark as a pioneer of new gatherer cuisine in an industry dominated by men. Final note, there's a fantastic profile of Ileana that came out last week in the New York Times entitled, After Culinary and Literary Acclaim, She's Moving to the Woods. It's by Kim Severson, and I highly recommend everybody check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. In any event, I think you're going to really love this one. So without further ado, here is me and Ileana Regan. Delighted to meet you. Thank you for yeah, doing nice this to today. Yeah, nice to meet you. Thanks. Uh, our point of contact was our mutual friend, mm-hmm. Jeff Gordonier, who has been singing your praises for a long time. And he's yeah. like, you got to meet Ileana. She's so great. <laughs> uh, and I texted him the other day. Um, and I was like, what should I talk to her about that you know, I'm not going to find on Google? And he was like, well, she's, she has this you know, very calming voice and she's very present, but don't be mistaken because she's a tiger. <laughs> she's very fierce. <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You don't, you don't, you don't, you've achieved a lot. Like, I mean, first of all, um, you're this amazing you know, award-winning chef with all these accolades. And then you get 
long listed for a national book award for your book. It's like, mm -hmm. it's not fair. You're like great <laughs> at both of these things. Like you could be a great chef, you could be a great writer, but to do both, that's quite something. So congratulations. Yeah, I'm in shock still. Yeah, mm -hmm. cause that was a recent, that was pretty recently announced, right? Yeah, September 19th. How does all that stuff work? I, I don't know, honestly, I it was a, a shock to me because I woke up that morning and I had like 25 text messages and a lot of emails and, you know, Twitter notifications and all that stuff with, you know, people saying congratulations. And I was like, what? Yeah, you didn't <laughs> what? even know. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> uh -huh. And then, um, and then, you know, uh, I think it was actually Jeff who explained it to me. He's like, you got the National Book Award long list. And then I had to look all of that up, uh -huh. you know. I mean, I knew that it was out there, but I didn't know, you know. I I went to writing school a long time ago. And mm. um, I remember that there's all these things uh, that, you know, you can get awarded for books. But I was never thinking about that while writing the book. You know, I thought yeah. if it sells, if it makes like a, you know, best list or bestsellers list, that would be more than I could hope for. And um, so that coming was just like, yeah, a, a huge surprise and something I wasn't even thinking of. So, yeah. so what do you really make of awesome. all of, what do you make of all of it? Um, I mean, it made me feel really good about the book because the night before I was writing my second book, which um, I'm working on with uh, my publisher, which is about foraging, but mm -hmm. still in a narrative style. And um, I was, you know, looking at s some references for my book sales and it was doing kind of poorly. And I was sitting there thinking, I don't even know if, you know, like staying up after work till two in the morning is even worth it, you know, writing this book and kind of sweating about it. And, um, and it, you know, being in self-doubt. And then the next morning that the long list happened, right. and, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, that felt really, really good. So. Yeah, the first uh, food-oriented book since Julia Child in 1980. yeah. Which also, again, yeah, I was just like, but I, yeah, I didn't understand how that works because the, there's been so many good food writers and authors and so many books that mm -hmm. have come out in food and about food and memoirs and how, you know, mine made it, um, and not some of the others that have been there is beyond me. And I'm, I'm assuming all publishers send their books to the National Book Award, to the foundation, you know, when they come out in whichever genre, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, et cetera. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It is very cool. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's fair to characterize it as just a food book. It really, I mean, it's yeah. about food, of course, but um, you know, it's a coming of age book. It's a it's a coming out story. It's an addiction recovery story. I mean, mm -hmm. it, you know, as somebody who you know myself, I've been in recovery for a long time, mm -hmm. um, and I love a good you know addiction yarn. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's plenty of them out there, but your voice is so specific, and to me, it felt very unique in mm -hmm. that regard as somebody who's read a lot of these kinds of stories and just yeah. beautifully done. And it was interesting how your tone shifted 
depending upon what period of your life you mm. were talking about. It was as if you were writing it in the voice of that person at that time. And it yeah. evolves as you progress through your life. Yeah, I mean, there's some things that I, while I was writing the book, you know, I was doing on a little bit on purpose. Like that that was one of them I was trying to inhabit me at the time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and some of the almost um, synesthesia of the narrative was also, you know, purposefully done. Um, I like to read books that don't follow linear timelines. Right. And even if I'm telling stories, which you probably already noticed since I've been here, is like I stop at an idea, go back, and then come back to it and, you know, continue going um, because I just don't think uh, linearly, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I go all over the place. Yeah, it's very, um, it's it, it's snippets of memory that are woven together in this tapestry. And I think synesthesia is a, is a perfect um, adjective for it. I mean, it's very rooted in the sensory mm-hmm. and memory and, you know, the smells kind of come alive with mm-hmm. the pages, especially, you know, in the food aspects of, of the story. Um, and telling it, you know, in the present state of what you recollect, as opposed to um, through the rearview mirror with perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I I had actually talked to my publisher quite a bit about um, a lot of the storytelling process and what I was doing, and um, you know, he just kept encouraging me to to go with it. And, um, I said, I, I don't think I can tell this story if I don't just like drop the reader right into the moment Mm -hmm. and continue on, um, from there. And with it jumping around, I said, if I go in a linear fashion to me, the way it just comes out is this really boring essay telling. Um, and I just don't, want to do that. And um, at first he had a little bit of concern, but then he was like, just, you know, do whatever. Do, I think that was the cool thing about working with somebody who was or is a small publisher and an indie publisher, because, you know, he was just like, let's, you know, let's do it. I think your your honesty is remarkable and it's not that common to find a writer who just like spills it right. all out. Even some of the passages, he's like, actually, this is too much information. You can't say this. We, uh-huh. we got to cut this thing out, you know? So I think that he knew that that was going to be really good for readers and really be able to help, um, you know, people be able to, um, to relate to the book and really become engaged. Yeah, I mean, you you. It seems like you almost go out of out of your way to not overly romanticize any of it. Like mm-hmm. you're 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 making a clear point of the fact that you know there is a there is a, a lens on which you could look at your story and say, oh look look you know look where she came from and look at all she's accomplished and isn't mm-hmm. this amazing and and sort of make it more glamorous than it mm-hmm. actually was in your experience and you're just sort of very plainly showing the truth of it mm-hmm. without sugarcoating it in any way. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I, maybe that's just me being a little bit different as a chef because I feel like that is what I do and that's what I love to do and it's an expression of myself and I mm-hmm. love cooking. And, um, you know, but 
it's really more than that because I love the storytelling of the cooking, like gathering our ingredients and growing things. And that's a big part of where we're going with our um, property in the Upper Peninsula in Michigan is to make it just feel a little bit more holistic um, because if this is going to be my career, like I can't continue to do it um, how I do it at the restaurant, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm talking like three, four or five years down the line. And um, I just want to feel, I, I guess, better about it. And I think that a lot of people look at like chefs and and my industry as being kind of glamorous, but it doesn't yeah. feel like that, at least not for me, not on a daily basis. So it was one of the things I struggled with actually in the last part of the book talking about my career because I didn't want to sound ungrateful um, because I, I am and I've accomplished a lot, but like there's very little glamour to it on a daily basis, mm -hmm. you know, like I feel more so like uh, I wake up to beat my head against the wall every morning right before I go to work, right. you know, so... Um, that glamour, I think, you know, is people always, when I meet them, they're like, oh, what do you do? You know, if they say, what do you do? I just say, I'm a cook at a restaurant. Like, cause I don't want to talk about it. You don't want to get into it? Because <laughs> no. if you say you're a chef, what? Then it's going to open up yeah, some Yeah, a lot of people that... will be like, oh, you're a chef. And um, are you on your own restaurant? That must be amazing. And I'm just thinking about like, all the nights, you know, the dishwasher called in because they're in jail or my staff was like, <laughs> fuck you, I'm leaving or somebody yeah. stole checks or, you know, just like all those, all those like things that happen at work on a daily basis that are so unglamorous and quite terrible when you, when it comes to managing others that, um, you know, the, yeah, that's what like is the first thing that that comes to mind. Um, and then I have to remind myself when I'm talking to them, like, I just need to talk about how I love cooking, you yeah. know, because, um, but yeah, if I can avoid the situation altogether, like when I first met my wife's family, a lot of them knew I had a restaurant and I just was like having such a hard time because everybody wanted to talk about how cool it was. And, you know, I was like, just struggling to be like, yeah, it's so cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you strike me as somebody who is kind of an insular, you know, perhaps somewhat introverted person, contemplative. Yeah. And it's this interesting trajectory because the roots of, of your passion are found in the woods by yourself foraging for these foods and um, you know, a very kind of solo affair and this love of, of, you know, combining flavors to create interesting, you know, interesting recipes, et cetera. Um, but then that means that you open a restaurant and you're managing all these people and you're yeah. looking at spreadsheets and you're dealing mm -hmm. with human resources and mm -hmm. payroll and all the like mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with what right. got you into it in the first place. Yeah, and I think I was just really um, naive um, when I was going into it, not realizing that with a small business, like, um, you know, and the business model set up to be really small that that, I think most chefs go into it thinking like, I'm just going to cook this beautiful food and right. not really thinking Everything about. Everything else takes care of itself. Yeah. And that was so not the case because I am the 
the human resources and, you know, the payroll person and all those other things. Um, I do have somebody helping me now, but sometimes in the past, like, you know, everybody comes and goes. And so it's, um, it's, it's complicated, but, um, I do tell people that like, if, you know, I, people often say like, oh, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would you say? And I would say like, don't open a restaurant. And, um, <laughs> and <laughs> but then I, um, then the other part of that is my younger self that I would be talking to would still do it. Like mm-hmm. that's where I was right. at that time. There was nobody, even my future self would have been able to tell me to not do it. And I would have listened. Yeah. Like I wouldn't have listened. I was listening to your conversation with David Chang on his mm-hmm. podcast. And that was something that you guys explored, like the mental health aspects yeah. of, of what it means to, on a daily basis to actually do mm-hmm. like what you guys do and the toll that it takes. And he kind of closes the whole thing by saying like, this, you know, this industry is the worst. But like, <laughs> I love it, it's the best, you know, it's that tension, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I see that, that kind of, there, you know, there is this duality that infuses your book and your work and your ethos and, and even, you know, how you parse your tattoos on your arms, this, this you know, dichotomy of light and dark mm-hmm. that kind of you leverage to, yeah. you know, be the creator that you are. Yeah, and I, I think that some of that is like, you know, when you're talking about mental health and, and people in the industry particularly, well, I think there's a lot of creative industries which... Um, this is a common theme, but you know, it's like the chicken or the egg, like does the work make us crazy? Or are we already crazy? Um, for me, it's definitely that I was already a little bit of a nut job. So that works that, you know, it makes sense that I'm doing what I do, you uh-huh. know? And it's almost like, you know, talking about addiction is like, I'm addicted to those actual highs and lows, you know, and maybe right. when I get somewhere else a little bit more, like older and wiser, like I can look back and be like, well, that's what was happening. Like I'm, you know, beating my head against the wall, but I was addicted to like that throbbing pain from mm-hmm. beating my head against the wall. Right. You know, like that's, that's, um, yeah, I, I guess, yeah. So I'm uh, just addicted to um, those highs and lows probably still. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's no shortage of addicts and alcoholics and people in recovery in your in your business. Right. You know, it's yeah. definitely it it definitely magnetizes people that are attracted to those polarities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you, yeah, like you said, like the dishwasher's in jail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, yeah, I mean, or maybe I, I'm in jail. I could yeah. say that because it's happened to us about three different times where you know the the dishwasher's roommate or sister or cousin or somebody has called and said, you know, they can't come in or we've called them looking for them. And, you know, they said, oh, they're they're in jail, you right. know, but in a couple of days they'll be out and, you know, they can come back. And it's like they never show. It, usually we're desperate enough to be like, all right, we'll see them in a couple of days. And then they right. still don't show up. <laughs> so, but um, right now at Elizabeth, well, for the past like six years, probably aside from, you know, the other jobs I do, like teaching the staff and creating the menus and all that, like while I'm at work during service, my primary job has been doing the dishes. Uh-huh. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> no. no, but see, that's another thing too that I I could go on and on about at work, 
But when other people do them, it kind of drives me crazy because I'm like, no, it should be cleaner and more organized and you're going too slow. Let me just do it. Yeah, but this is the control freak alcoholic in you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. Even when like I am doing the dishes and somebody comes over to help me, one of my staff members, I'm like, hey, like you're in my, I'm in the zone, you know, like Uh back off. Yeah. This is my station. (laughs) (laughs) You can't scale that, Elena. That's not going to work. Yeah. But this is the trip, right? So uh, how do you think about um, the relationship, like your, the relationship creatively between cooking and writing? Like Mm -hmm. are they're they're both, you know, equally creative and you excel in both. Like do those feed off each other or do you think of them as different disciplines or are they all one and the same? It's definitely the same for me because um, when I decided to, and I might've talked about this in the book, but when I was 28 years old, I thought, um, all right, like, I'm either going to go back to school for writing and Uh get my MFA and, you know, maybe try to teach um, and take that route, or I'm just going to open a restaurant, which is something else that I always wanted to do. And so I decided to open a restaurant. And so I had to, you know, figure out how to do that um, by creating a name and and doing it a little bit unconventionally because I hadn't gone to cooking school and I hadn't worked my way up through the restaurants like some of the other mm-hmm. chefs had with, you know, working for Charlie Trotter or this person or that person. And, um, but I was, you know, thinking about these two options and I was talking to a lot of friends about it who knew that I had gone to school for writing and um, that I was actually really active it, with it, even while I was still working mm-hmm. in restaurants. I was always working on a book or, you know, working on a collection of poetry or whatever it was. And um, I spent a lot of time doing that. And so they would ask, like, well, what about your writing? You know, you're going to do this restaurant thing. How are you going to do writing? And after I was already pretty immersed in it, maybe like a year in and really focusing on getting myself up to date with kitchen work, um, I felt like creating menus was equally um, as, um, it it fed that creative energy just as equally as writing did. Like I could get lost in the creation of a menu and thinking about it in different presentations and how I want it to look or how I want it to um, I don't know, just taste um, and what that means or where I could find it and how it could be a representation of, you know, time and place or, you know, a memory. And so that, yeah, that was equally there. And so then now, like, actually doing both is really fulfilling. Um, and and somehow I, you know, was able to divide my time to be able to um, – you know, not only work in the restaurant and do all that stuff, but then also write. But it was still coming mm-hmm. from the same creative same energy. Place, right. Yeah. Well, you you had a, a, a unique path in your kind of ascension as a chef. Like, yes, you didn't go to culinary school. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't, you know, sort of uh, apprentice under these well-known chefs, but you put your time in, in a ton of restaurants. And mm-hmm. this goes back mm-hmm. all the way to you being, you know, the youngest child, like yeah. foraging with your family. And 
So let's let's start at the beginning a little bit and, mm-hmm. and talk a little bit about that. And I think um, what comes across so so beautifully in the book is again back to this duality or this tension, like this sense from a very early age, like this isn't really my home and I need to get away from here mm-hmm. in order to find myself and and connect with my identity, but also a real reverence and respect and appreciation and love for the way in which you were brought up that mm-hmm. taught you this way of living that infuses your food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, um, I I don't know. I feel like I got really, really lucky to have had the the family that I did and grow up where I did. I mean, that even um, my family members who are extended family members uh, feel the same way about the farmhouse mm. that I grew up in, um, you know, and have such like cherished memories from that time. Um, one of my cousins is pretty close in age to me, and she basically grew up there with me. And, um, you know, she just is like in love with it too, you know? So I was really lucky to have that. And that was part of what I was trying to express in the book. Um, because all my, most of my memories of that place are somewhat centered around food, you know, Uh and that's how my family operated. Um, my dad loved food and loved cooking and my mom had her own like relationship with food that uh, was on a lot of different levels. Um, and so they, um, kind of provided that atmosphere, which was just kind of, um, really magical and special. And so every single thing we did as a family was always Mm -hmm. centered around some kind of meal. And, um, and it was always really good too, you know, and sometimes it was, um, something that was just simple from the garden, or sometimes it was, you know, really complex, like roasting whole animals and, you know, what, whatever it was. But I was, through the book trying to, you know, show that like my ascension into the career that I had was definitely, I pretty much, you know, without cooking school, didn't really need it because like I got all the training I needed throughout my life, you know, which started really early. Like, I don't know a lot of four-year-olds who sit and hold the intestines as, you know, the their dad is stuffing the sausage or right. whatever, you know? Right, right, right. So, so that was, um, you know, I think just like extremely uh, special, especially, you know, when I look back at it, because <clears throat> as, a, as a kid, I might not have always felt like that, you know, maybe when I was eight or nine or 10, like I was really jealous of my friends who lived in neighborhoods and could ride their bikes on the street and do all those sorts of things. But, um, you know, there was plenty of what I had that um, was also just incomparable. Like, you know, no no one else had that. So Right. So uh, basically this sort of gothic pastoral, uh, you know, landscape in mm-hmm. rural Indiana, a couple hours outside of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Farmland, there's this pull, this allure of mm-hmm. the forest, and you kind of invert the fairy tale, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of aspects of what it means to be a child wandering around in the forest. And I think the passage that really um, 
encapsulates the whole book and your story. And what spoke to me, you know, very powerfully was the story of you. I think you're five at the time and you're going out into the forest with your dad to Mm -hmm. forage for, for chanterelles. Um, and he teaches you how to shoot a gun and there's a sketchy uncle that's involved Mm -hmm. and a tornado that Mm -hmm. threatens your life. And, uh, and it all culminates with you, um, basically cooking what you foraged Mm -hmm. with your family and it kind of ends nicely, but it, it has, it, I mean, that in and of itself is almost like a fable and Mm -hmm. you kind of close that by saying I escaped fate and discovered Mm -hmm. that I was a chef or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. But I think you could easily also say like, you didn't escape fate. Like this is you connecting with you. Like this Mm -hmm. is a fated thing. Like Mm -hmm. this is bred into you from as early Mm -hmm. as you can remember that this, Mm -hmm. this was going to be your path. Right. Actually, Actually, that's a lot of what I'm exploring in my new book, which is going to be about foraging and very much in a, in a similar narrative style. And um, where I'm kind of going with that is, um, you know, with kind of playing along the lines of inherited trauma. And I'm still trying to um, research a bit of it and and learn more about how, you know, our ancestors' experience get burned into our our DNA Mm -hmm. um, and that a lot of, like, the trauma perhaps does. But also I'm, I'm thinking about, like, what about, you know, the other things that are perhaps just, like, predetermined in that kind of way because my, my um, dad's grandmother, so my great-grandmother, actually in Poland, she had an inn, you know, and she was a chef. And then she came here. She married a uh, a wrestler from the circus, mm. which is wild. Wow! <laughs> and then they <laughs> they they came to the um, United States, and um, then in Gary, Indiana, where they ended up living, they had um, a hamburger shop, and she had a really popular hamburger shop. And then eventually, my 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 debt her daughter took over, you know, Jenny's Cafe, right. which my mom was the chef at and and things like that. So, I mean, that's a that's a long line of, you know, people in the food industry, right, you right, know, right, right. and people connected to food. And I thought that was just, I, I didn't know that about my great grandmother until I was asking my dad a lot of questions um, because he's got a lot of stories about our family history. And um, he just recently told me about that because I had known that she had a burger shop in Gary, Indiana, but I hadn't known about her life before that. And then I was asking him and he said that, yeah, she had an inn and I was really shocked and, you know, was like, well, isn't that, you know, apropos considering like we've just opened an inn as well, you know? Yeah. Well, you drop these hints in the book. I mean, there's sort of the dis the detritus of the restaurant, you know, mm-hmm. packed away in the house and you tell mm-hmm. the story of your mom quitting and, and mm-hmm. you know, working there. So yeah, this is part of the fabric of, of, of who mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. going dating way back, which is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that all has, has been fate. Um, I just, in the book was describing sliding it as, you know, as perhaps I was destined to be a transgender truck driving carny because from mm-hmm. such a early age I was in love with the fair and I mean ob- obsessed with it and maybe that was the whole grandfather being a wrestler in the circus I don't know but I was also 
um, very, you know, obsessed with becoming a boy. And then from an early age, too, like I was fascinated with semi-trucks and wanted to, to like, every time I was on my bike, I was pretending I was, and driving around the neighbor's driveway, which was paved because ours was gravel, I was, um, you know, pretending I was in my semi. So um, I still love road trips, but. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I don't know. Maybe that's that, a future you, you job. You just needed that wrestler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So who, well, who knows? Well, let's talk about that. I mean, the, the, the coming of age, the coming out aspect of, of the story. I mean, infused throughout this is this, um, you know, sense of displacement, this idea like, I'm supposed, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a boy. You're sort of being affirmed as a boy by your dad, mm-hmm. um, and uh, this grappling that you do with identity that mm-hmm. dates back also as far as you can remember. Yeah, I mean that it dates back before I think I can could even talk um, because, and again, I don't know if I put this in the book. I can't remember, but. One of my clearest, earliest memories is of sitting on the floor with my cousin, who I said had grown up with me, and we were not even walking age, and she was on my left, and they, somebody, whoever was taking the picture gave us Minnie and Mickey dolls to hold, and they gave me the Minnie and her the Mickey, and I took the Mickey and threw her the, the mini because for some reason in my kid head was like, I'm the boy without right. even, I don't even think I had the words for it. It was just like, I want that doll, not the one with the pink bow. Mm. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, that that was definitely predating being able to like verbalize any of that. So, you know, I don't know if that goes to being born gay or born in a different, um, you know, gender, just like the the affirmation of gender fluidity, you know, and right. people saying it's not as binary as, you know, it has to be. And, you know, there's not a part of me today that is like, um, oh, I'm a boy, although I do very much feel like, you know, and this is a little bit stereotyping, but how women are like sometimes conditioned or um, just feel naturally competitive with other women. I don't feel that at all, but I feel competitive with men, Mm. you know, and I don't know what that is. Maybe because like I have a little bit of that masculinity or testosterone that's like, no, that that's my competition, and I got to be better than them. Or maybe it was always in my life, you know, people saying, but you're not a boy, but you're not a boy. And then I was like, but I'm going to do boy things, mm, you know. Right. I'm going to show you I can, you know, be better than them or whatever it was. I don't, I don't know. There's just, there's a lot to explore there. But, um, yeah, so that my dad did always... Um, say that, like, he'd be like, yeah, you're a little boy. And I don't know if, like, that was just him teasing or him actually thinking that I was going to be gay someday and, like, allowing Mm. that process to already form. Actually, he probably didn't think that. But he would, because he was quite, like, sexist. He is quite sexist and homophobic. Not now, but, like, he would say derogatory things um, 
when I was younger about, you know, gay people or whatever. And so um, none of that stopped me from feeling the way that I did or feeling afraid of, you know, becoming gay. But um, I don't know. I don't know what that was necessarily or what his standpoint was. But my mom said that at a early, like when I was pretty young, her and my dad had talked about the fact that, you know, I might turn out gay someday right. or somehow different because of my adamacy about like, I want to wear boy things and I want to look like a boy and all this stuff. And she said that they like reconciled with that really early on uh-huh. and just kind of let me be me. Right. And how are they, how are they now with everything? They're fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, my dad still worries that, you know, Anna and I don't have a man around to take care of things, you know. He's like, <laughs> for last time he was up, he, he brought us paper towel and toilet uh-huh. paper. Like, we're not going to have any. And, like, you know, keeps bringing guns and stuff. And <laughs> so, Has he been up to, to, yeah, to the Upper Peninsula? Well, yeah, that's yeah. where he brings it of, to. Yeah, I see. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, but... Um, yeah, he's he's very convinced that without, you know, some kind of male supervision that we might just like wither and die. Um and uh but yeah, my mom is like men smell. You know, like she's com- <laughs> she's like uh, very happy about, you know, uh, she's she's extremely proud. I mean, he he is too, but in his own special way. Right. Mm-hmm. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent, a struggling teen or battling addiction yourself. I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. 
There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I thought it was really intriguing how you begin to explore this non-binary world through the discovery of people like Boy George and oh, Annie yeah. Lennox who are like icons mm. of, you know, that notion that it's it, it need not be one or the other. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about how that kind of impacted how you reflected on yourself. Yeah, I that was, I mean, so early that I, you know, saw Boy George on the television and was like, wow, just somehow I immediately identified with that, mm -hmm. even though, you know, um, and just fascinated and sort of, uh, what is this? But also understanding it completely at the same time. Um, and I think just being, you know, maybe it was a feeling of feeling not alone to be able to see a man um, you know, looking so beautiful and dressed like a woman, you know, like kind of with makeup and long hair and all of that. And then also to see Annie Lennox and almost feel like, if I could think about it, feel like I shouldn't be watching this because I'm having feelings, uh -huh. you know, like even as a kid, like not like sexual feelings or anything like that, but almost feeling embarrassed in and I don't think I know anything about her sexuality uh, at all but seeing a woman who was very ambiguous and uh you know with short hair and wearing a suit and 
just thinking like, that's me too, uh-huh. you know? So being able to see both of them and feeling like completely connected, but even her more so. Um, and yeah, like I said, like kind of feeling embarrassed, like I'm supposed to look away because if anybody sees how enthralled I am with this, then I'm going to be found out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But but it had to be empowering to see people like that who are so strong and unapologetic about who they are, right? Like right. they're standing in their strength in a very in a very profound mm-hmm. way, right? Where mm-hmm. they're like this is who I am and there's a boldness to that mm-hmm. that I think is, you know, it's it's hard to look away. Yeah, and that was the that was like the only reference I had for anything like that when I was young. I think at um some some points like later on in life, um, maybe when I was in, you know, my, my early teens, like some of my sisters, my, my sister Nina would, you know, like if there was something that was a little bit gay, um, and not that much was coming out on TV, but it was starting to, she would, you know, say, Oh, did you see this? Or have you watched this? Uh Or, you know, like one of my sisters gave me, um, I was just talking about this the other day. My oldest sister, Elizabeth, gave me the... She was always giving me books to read because she was like... She, I don't know, she probably read like 25 books a year. She was very well-read. And um, she... Yeah, mm-hmm. she liked all different genres. And uh, she gave me the interview with a vampire, the Anne Rice. And I really... That actually was a moment when I came out to myself through reading that book was like, I'm gay because there's a lot of the homoeroticism. And I think they even might be partners at one point. And, and I can't remember the book completely, but Lestat and um, what's the other guy's name? I Do forget. You, I don't know. Yeah, but they... feel like a dummy now. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't remember, but I know that they become involved at certain yeah. points. And my, you know, I'm like, okay, I know that I feel this way too, but not about men, but about women. And just reading about that um, was like, oh, yeah, I am that. I am gay. Like, this is what I am. And so I was probably maybe like 14 or 15, even though I had some moments before then where, um, you know, I would kind of come out to to myself and say, yeah, you know, this is what it is, but then try to push it away. But that was one really affirming moment. The other was I was in a, in the movie theater with my mom and one of my good friends, and we were watching Don Juan DeMarco with Johnny Depp, and she, I think that's who was in it. And she kept fawning over Johnny Depp, like, oh, he's so cute, he's so cute. And I was like, okay, that the woman in the show is really wowzers you know and uh-huh. so it was at that moment too those were one of the moments i was like that's straight and then i am not that you know yeah so but um i don't know how i got on that topic anyways i think just to, oh, you know boy the, george yeah yeah boy starting with boy <laughs> george but just this process of of self-discovery unfolding and you know the, the way that you recount it makes me think I wonder what it's like now. I mean, this is pre-internet, the pre, yeah. you know, look, we still have tons of problems, but there is a mainstreaming to this that, you know, didn't exist at that mm-hmm. time. Yeah, Anna and I talk about that a lot because 
we talk about how how children now, you know, um, who are able to transition because they feel one a, a separate gender, um, and how it's actually, you know, the earlier they start some of the hormones and things, the better for their transition later in life. And, you know, she says, I wonder if, you know, you were born now, like how that would have impacted you and would you had changed? Like, would I mm. be a guy sitting right. here, you know? And it's like, wow, that, I mean, that's a really incredible question because I know for me, like, I'm very happy, um, you know, being a woman and inhabiting a woman's body, no matter what, you know, I may feel inside, but I don't feel like completely the opposite sex right. either, you know, and so I'm glad that that wasn't part of my experience. But, you know, it's really interesting to think about because, yeah, I probably would have, you know, given the choice, been like, yeah, let's do it. Right, to transition. Get me a little penis. Yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated because... On the one hand, it allows people to um, accept themselves and be accepted mm -hmm. for uh, you know wanting that and to get mm -hmm. support for that. But also, if it's if it's at a point where they're not fully mature, are they really in a place to make that decision that mm -hmm. has an impact on the rest of their life? Right. Like, will they change? Will they? Will they? You know, develop a different perspective. Yeah, later? and that's why I I feel like it's it's interesting to think about, but something I can't speak to. You know, because like I can never say what what would happen. And my experience has been that I'm I'm fine, but that doesn't mean that other children are necessarily ever going to be fine with staying mm -hmm. in that same gender, you know, right. but it's, it's, yeah, it's really just a mind. It's like, so it's, yeah, it's just, uh, it's very easy to mess with your mind thinking about that thing. And I mean, we've even talked about it, like, what if our children, you know, want to transition? And I'm like, I don't even know how to think about that. You yeah. Know, well, like, you you cross that bridge when you come. Yeah. Down. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the uh, drugs and alcohol. Sure. So where I does this start? To, yeah. Go for it. When does that start to creep in and rear its head? Um, well, from an early age, I had seen a lot of alcoholism in my family. Um, whether it was big, like my uncle Georgie, who was very scary and very aggressive um, as as an alcoholic and, you know, would come over to the house with guns and shoot them and, you know, like at the house or whatever. Like, so knowing that that's one form that alcoholism takes. And another form is, you know, seeing my sister stumble around sort of dead drunk and be in trouble and, or Going up, I remember my mom, I was small enough that my mom was carrying me and we got to the top of our stairs and looking into my sister's room and knowing that she was in trouble, maybe it was the feeling that I had from my mom, but knowing my sister was in trouble and her passed out in the bed with, you know, puke all over her bed sheets and stuff because she had been vomiting in mm -hmm. the night. And... Um, so there, and then there was the times where it was like, oh, these adults are getting louder and they're funnier and they're being goofy, but it's not scary. 
Um, so that being said, though, I think that that's also part of like, it kind of explains, like I was saying earlier, the chicken with the egg with, um, you know, and also being addicted to some of that head banging anxiety or whatever it is, because as a child, even though that could all be really scary, like I still thought was very intrigued by like what alcohol could mm -hmm. do. Like I was like, this thing's very bad, but I definitely want it. Um, and so then when I started drinking, um, uh, I mean, I had like a couple times where I had sips of beer, or, you know, my dad would give me Mogan David um, shots when I would cough at night and, you know, but I had never experienced what actual drunk could feel like. But the first time I did experience that, my brain was definitely not wired to be like, okay, you've had enough, now you should stop. Because right. I think some normal people, they go through that feeling where they're like, oh, I'm feeling good. Like, uh, all right, I probably don't need any more. But that's not what happens to my my brain or my body. It's like just it needs as much as possible. Um, and From the get-go. Yeah, and yeah. so when I was, the first time I drank, that was my experience with it. And I know, you know, addiction and, and um, alcoholism can manifest in different ways within people, whereas they used to might maybe be able to control their their alcohol intake, and then some days something happens where it just switches and they can't anymore, or um, it might be external or internal event. But for me, it was right from the beginning. So you know, going also back to like that inherited. Um, trauma or DNA, maybe, you know, that was definitely, if it's a gene that gets passed along, I definitely got that yeah. gene, you know, because um, right from the start. But also, it, you know, it allowed me to feel comfortable in a body that I never really felt comfortable in. And also uh, a mind, which my, you know, my head was always... Um, somewhere else and always imagining, um, you know, some other time in life. And it allowed me to, um, you know, feel normal because I was always introverted and mm -hmm. always shy and always awkward. And as a kid, that didn't always play out the best way. Like, why are you so, so shy? Why are you so quiet? You know, when people then would turn the light on my awkwardness, then I felt more awkward, you know, and wanted to like shut down even more. And so then shutting down even more would create more of an issue. Right. Um, and to where like when my family would have functions, if certain people were coming over, I would go and hide in my closet until they were gone, like hide the entire time because they were somebody who expected me to be like a child, like who should play and talk to them. And, and, and it scared me and I didn't want to be like focused on, right. um, you know, which is all just crazy too, because when you think about my career, it's all about the focus. So it's, it's just, it's very multidimensional, but, um, yeah. What were we talking about? Just talking about the, the beginning of, of <laughs> alcoholism. And I think oh, that, yeah. I think what you're saying gets glossed over 
um, and doesn't get enough attention, which is that it works. Like there's a yeah. there's a part of this. I mean, what you just shared it could be, you know, my story is very different from yours, but like mm-hmm. I completely relate to everything that you just said. Like, mm-hmm. and I I felt my own experience through the lens of your own, mm-hmm. in that it brings you out of your shell. It mm-hmm. makes you feel normal, and like you mm-hmm. can talk to another human being, right. and you're comfortable in your own skin. And it's almost like oh, this is how everybody else feels right. all the time. Yeah. Like, I want to yeah. feel like this all the time too. Yeah. Give That's me more I mean. of that, yeah. you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it isn't like, oh, well, one day, you know, it, it, one day it's fine and the next day it's a problem. This, right. this plays out over a very long period of time. Like it mm-hmm. works until... It stops working, right? But that's not a binary thing either. Mm-hmm. This is a scale, and for me, it worked for a long time, and I think it worked for a long time for you. Like, I look at the way that I interact with people, and I learn certain social skills as a result of of drinking and using mm-hmm. that I don't know how I would have learned otherwise. Maybe right. I would have just locked myself in my room and mm-hmm. just not dealt. <laughs> um, and and I would imagine that. Mm-hmm. You know, despite the fact that you insist on washing the dishes at your own restaurant, you do have to manage people and you have to mm-hmm. interact with them and in very close quarters, right? Mm-hmm. And so some of those skills come out through the social lubricant, mm-hmm. you know, initially right. that teaches you how to do these kinds of things. Yeah, but I honestly, for me in recovery, I had to relearn all of that. And right. now where I learn it is is actually through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Like that's... That's what worked for me because, like, I learned there how to share with people mm-hmm. and be able to, um, you know, by, I, I don't know if for you, if your story, if you're familiar with it, but there's a, something called the fifth step where you you share, like, all of, um, you know, everything. You just share everything, right? And um, it was by sharing with another human being on that very personal level that I learned how to talk to other people and kind of be able to learn how to express myself and my emotions and just communicate. And also learning how to um, talk with others like in the restaurant Mm -hmm. and with, you know, being a, a manager and being able to like look at, you know, the things that might be frustrating to me, but also how to address them and being mindful of my tone. And I'm not always good at it, but at least I have some kind of mechanism and place to go back to where I've (coughs) gotten some tools and some um, experience being able to like just go through interactions that might be, you know, normal for some, but for Mm -hmm. me feel really painful, especially just sometimes just even having a conversation with somebody and be, you know, like um, one of the things that has been an issue with me is just expecting that people should know how I feel. But I'm also somebody who doesn't really emote so or have good communication skills. So, you know, how are they going to expect to know what to do or to know when, you know, something was done wrong if I don't, you know, uh, go ahead and have the conversation about it, but then also have the conversation in a way that is, you know, not going to hurt them and right. be able to communicate what I need done effectively, right. you know? Right. So that's a lot of energy. Yeah. Well, I'm no stranger to the fist <laughs> myself. Uh, yeah. In fact, I had a, one of my second sponsor was from Chicago and I know the recovery community in Chicago is really, 
really mm-hmm. strong. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, I lots of lots of you know people from Chicago have moved out to Los Angeles, and I've I've been a, a few meetings out that way, and I know like what that community is all mm-hmm. about, and I know mm-hmm. it's really tight. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you learn these tools, you learn how to own your own shit, mm-hmm. you learn how to understand your story, you learn how to develop empathy for mm-hmm. other human beings and mm-hmm. see uh, see the world through their perspective. And all of mm-hmm. this lends itself to improving, you know, communication yeah. skills mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I think that that was a big part of um, with writing the book is that because like I learned how to share and learn how to talk and uh, essentially learned how to tell the truth, like through the program, it was, easy for me to just kind of like spill it all out, you know? And like I said, my, my editor was like, wow, you know, like, I think your honesty in this book is really unique and, and that's going to be really good. And, um, and I wasn't even thinking Right. About that. You well, know, that's the like, thing, because you spend thousands of hours in these rooms listening to people right. be their most vulnerable and honest selves, and you yeah. learn to do that for yourself, and it becomes second mm-hmm. nature. Mm-hmm. And it's always surprising when you kind of take that out <laughs> into the rest of the world, and people mm-hmm. are like, whoa, you're so honest, because yeah. it just becomes second nature. Right. And that's I was explaining that to somebody, too. It's like, I will never feel more vulnerable than in those moments where I had to walk in a room full of strangers and say that, like, I'm actually not well, you know, and that I'm an alcoholic and that rawness. It it feels very much like, you know, maybe how some people have the dream where they're, you know, naked in front of a crowd and which is sometimes still I have that that dream too and it's like oh my god how did I get here why am I naked right now um but yeah I think that um that that's the most vulnerable situations I've ever been in having to like you know go into the room and say that I have this problem when I had spent so much time trying to situate the outside so it mm-hmm. didn't look like that yeah. you know yeah, and I think there's um, a temptation, or one thing that I see in in kind of the addiction, nonfiction, you know, memoir space, mm-hmm. is people with super crazy stories. You know, mm-hmm. it's like like who's got the craziest using mm-hmm. story? Um, and I appreciated the fact that yours, like, yeah, you tell some crazy stories, but it's not like I'm trying to, you know out crazy everyone else. Mm-hmm. Like this is just my personal thing mm-hmm. and it has its own demoralizing aspects to mm-hmm. it and things that maybe for normal people might seem shocking. But for me, I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is just, you know, this is like, here's an alcoholic mm-hmm. and an addict being honest about what happened, what it was mm-hmm. like, what happened and what it's like now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually think that there was a part of me as I was writing the book was thinking about it in those terms, you know, cause it was, separated into the three parts and it was like yeah what it was like what happened and what mm-hmm. it was like what it's like now <laughs> like right you all know. these things we learned you know, <laughs> yeah in that construct yeah so there was a lot there there's a lot to be said for you know like that you know i think we're, what was making me think of this was like talking about yeah the the social lubricant of alcohol and how that taught me to be a certain way but then also like aa had to 
reteach me um, how to be a certain way. And there's a lot to be said for that because, like, I don't think, I, I mean, I, I say this um, definitely, at least in the acknowledgments of my book, but, you know, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have anything that I have today, uh-huh. you know, so. Um, how do you think about the tradition of not sharing at the level of press, radio, and film? Like, did that infuse how you thought about how to talk about this in the book and how um, you're talking about it on podcasts yeah, and interviews? Right. Like, it's a tricky thing. Right. Um, when I, for the first, like, five years of the program, I didn't, and I had already had my restaurant for about three years. And what ended up happening was that um, I was in a car, in the car with somebody from the press, um, because before I had never mentioned it uh, Mm -hmm. uh, at any public level. Like, people who were close to me knew, and my staff would know and things like that. But um, I had a big book in there, and she had asked me about it, and then I was like, this is off the record, but, you know, here's the deal. And But it still made it to the, it still made it to print. Uh And Actually, I had... Even though it was off the record, she still put it in? Yeah, it was still... It still made it. Um, And I... Wait, I have to take that back because I don't know if I said this is off the record, but I said this is something I don't talk about. And then Mm. when it was going to print, I asked her to please take it out because I think she might have sent me the story first, but she didn't. Mm. So it stayed in there. So I, I can't remember the exact conversation, but either way, I had asked for it not to be in there. But that story was the story that my publisher read and came to me and said, I think you have an interesting story and I want you to write a memoir. So, and a lot of that had to do with, you know, obviously my, so if it's a memoir, I have to talk about everything. And so then I talked to my sponsor about it and said, like, here's what I'm going to do. And I have this memoir and, you know, this I also talked to her about the piece that had come out in the magazine about it and was like, it's kind of out there now. And so there was a lot of conversations about like, well, what are you trying to get from this? Um, You know, and I was like, honestly, nothing, just trying to tell my story. And so we were talking a lot about just making sure that it's right sized wherever it is and that it's not from like a, a platform of like, I'm so great or look at all these accomplishments Mm -hmm. or like, you know, um, I got sober, you should do it too. (laughs) Or, you know, trying to be like uh, uh, a spearhead or however you want to call it of AA because um, I definitely don't think like, you know, there's definitely moments that I even have up to this day where it's like, if people knew that'd be pretty embarrassing, they'd be like, if that's an alcoholic Mm. and she's sober, I don't want to get sober. I might as well stay (laughs) drunk, you know? (laughs) So like, I don't want to be the spokesperson, Uh you know? Um, But yeah, so I I guess, you know, if anything, whenever I I go to actually a 12-step meeting where we do the work out of the, it's my Monday night meeting and I really love it and we work out of the, the 12 and 12. And whenever we get to that tradition, I'm like, oh, I hope I don't have to comment. Mm. You know, right. like, <laughs> that's just kind of how I feel in the room about it. Like, and I know that some people know, 
um, what I do and some people don't. And um, I just kind of leave it that way. And I just always hope that the comments don't come to me when we're on that that tradition on that specific yeah. tradition. well it's a it's a it's a tricky thing i mean i've i struggle with this quite a bit because on the one hand like i certainly don't want to hold myself out as a, a paragon a paragon of sobriety like i mm-hmm. have my struggles just like everybody else um but also when i got sober you know 12 step was like this black box that I knew nothing about. And mm-hmm. I've often thought like, if I'd known a little bit more about it, or if somebody I respected had mm-hmm. referenced it or talked about it a little bit more openly, perhaps I would have found myself towards it a little mm-hmm. bit sooner. And I understand mm-hmm. the principles behind the tradition and all of that. Um, but there's a lot of people out there suffering who mm-hmm. don't know what to do also. Mm-hmm. And so it creates this kind of um, confusion. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there has been a sense that one piece came out and even things that have happened since then that have come out. And with the book, there's been a lot of people who have reached out to me um, because of their struggle. So Mm -hmm. I know that it's helping in some ways, probably hopefully more than, than hurting anything, but um, one, one woman actually was, I would correspond back and forth with her uh, after that 2015 article because, um, her husband was struggling with alcohol. And so she was on the Al-Anon side and, um, she just wanted to understand more about my experience. And obviously it was like, I really want him to talk to you, but you know, I would just kind of be as, um, you know, like, oh, have you tried Al-Anon? And, you know, just giving her any suggestions that probably my sponsor would have given right. to me or somebody mm-hmm. else, you know. And um, But, yeah, some other chefs have said, yeah, I kind of struggle with alcohol and this and that, and I found your story really inspiring. So I think that, you know, it's good also um, that it's out there because at least, you know, people – are, it's resonating with them. And, you know, I think that the more that sometimes we talk about it, at least it, the mental health aspect of it, yeah. it provides, um, I don't know, I guess a resource because I definitely felt like the way I was feeling in my restaurant, it, you know, in the restaurant industry with some of the woes of management and just the hardship of, you know, doing this thing that I'm really passionate about, but the constant, um, you know, struggle with finances and everything else, um, that I was feeling alone, but then I went to the MAD conference, um, which I'm sure Jeff has told you about. I know um, is something that Renee puts on in Copenhagen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I met the woman who organizes yeah, that. Marlena, yeah, Yeah, yeah uh-huh. so... Um, when I went to that in 2016, a lot of it was about mental health. And I honestly, coming back from that, felt really renewed that I, you know, because just like in AA, we get better as a group and having people that we can relate to. So the same thing with that, being amongst my peers and able to hear that they're struggling with the same thing and we Mm -hmm. don't have to put up this front that we're... Like everything's okay um, was extremely helpful because I was kind of feeling at certain points like I was 
pretty much going crazy, you know, and so that helped me right. feel a lot better that there was other people that were experiencing the same thing. Yeah. Well, drinking just infuses the the restaurant culture in general, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I don't know what the percentage of people that work in that industry is that struggle with these kinds of mm-hmm. things, but I would imagine it's probably high on top of the fact that it yeah. attracts that kind of personality. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm so far being in the restaurant industry. I also feel like I'm so far removed with what's actually happening. Um, and maybe it's because like, I don't drink and I'm not in those circles. And so I don't know, but I know that at my restaurant, a lot of my staff, um, they don't seem to be able to cut it if they have, problems with addiction and alcoholism because it's funny how that works <laughs> yeah but in the long run at least yeah and and i think it's because we're so small and we have to work so hard that if you are too exceptionally tired on too many days mm-hmm. you just like can't do the work that's that's required and so so i find that in my environment i don't think a lot of people struggle with addiction, uh, or at least the staff that I have, mm-hmm. uh, or as far as I know, because um, I don't think that they have time for it. But I, you know, I don't know. But I think that there's definitely other restaurants that maybe maybe they do, and or maybe they're just really good at hiding it from me. But um, yeah, I think that um, it's regardless of what I know about it. I mean, I just know that the restaurant industry, at least when I was actively using, was definitely the place to be. Right. You know, right, because right, right. Right. You, especially if you were working front of the house and making good money, like then you could go to the bar and stay out till four and then wake up at noon or one and go back to work. And it was yeah, easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. 
Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So you've been you've been sober now almost ten years. Yeah. 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 yeah this December will be ten years. Congrats mm-hmm. on that. Thanks. Um, but early on, you bring your burgeoning alcoholism and your your budding uh, gender and sexual identity into the carnival of the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. You're bouncing around between all these restaurants. You're kind of learning your craft, and you know that's its own journey of self discovery. Um, so walk me up to getting sober. And what I'm really interested in is when you start um, to uh, to open up uh, this little business at the farmer's market that led mm-hmm. to these dinners that you were hosting in your apartment. Because mm-hmm. I think that that's sort of like the, the foundation for what you've right. built since. Yeah, I was... Um, so... Uh, so I spent a lot of my 20s not only drinking, but also sober because I was in and out of the program. And I think the, those periods of sobriety were very helpful um, to at least get me. To, one, I mean, I think if I had continuously drank throughout my 20s, I probably would be dead mm-hmm. now. But um, so that those moments helped me get some perspective and helped me get my shit together at times. And and I think it was from that that I was able to have enough of, uh, um, I don't know, mindfulness to be able to think about like where I wanted my life to go. And so I made that decision um, to move forward with the farmer's markets. That was kind of like my my way to say, okay, here's how I'm going to show people that I know how to cook and that I can do this and I can do this restaurant business thing. And I'll start by, you know, um, just like showing people what I want to do, which is grow my own things and make food from them, make, you know, prepared things. Um, like whether it's tortillas or jams or biscuits or pasta, um, and then what I ended up making um, was pierogies. I had a lot of beets that I had right. grown in the garden. From and, your mom. Yeah. And I was like, um, all right, I think I'm going to mash these up and put them in pierogies. And then, you know, she helped me figure out the dough recipe um, by using the noodle recipe that she would make with her grandfather and or her uncle. And um, so I went to the farmer's market with all these pierogies and I was in the Northwestern in, or like in Crown Point, that's the first farmer's market Mm -hmm. I did was in Indiana, even though I was living in Chicago. And, um, of course being there, like pierogi, you know, people are very familiar with that because they have the pierogi fest and everything else. And there's still a large Eastern European population there. Um, so yeah, I, I had this huge line and sold out immediately and, 
figured, okay, this is, if this is what's going to work, even though as I was making the pierogies, I was saying to myself, I'm never going to make these again, um, because of the labor intensity of them, I was like, all right, this is what's going to work. And I think that that's probably one of my first, um, kind of ego beatdowns in the restaurant world was like, I'm never going to make this bullshit again. And then was like, well, this is what sells. So, okay, I'm going to make this Mm. bullshit. Um, um, so, um, but people loved them. And then, um, somehow I can't remember, but somebody in Chicago got word of that. That's what I was selling at the farmer's markets. And they asked me to sell them in their store. And so then I had to come up with like a little logo and packaging. And then I started selling them in, in a, a grocery store. And then somehow the Chicago magazine had, gotten a hold of them in the store and wrote about them. And uh, then, um, so I don't know if you remember this publication, but it was an online thing called Pop Sugar. And uh-huh. it really went to the target market of, you know, uh, pierogies, I guess, because they sent out a thing that said that um, I... Uh, you know, so it was something about my progress. I don't remember, but I just got all these crazy amounts of orders. Mm. And then I started selling them at another store. And so then I was in a couple of Chicago farmers markets. And so everybody thought I wanted to have a pierogi restaurant, which was not the case. But when I finally decided to do the underground restaurant, I had heard I was so I was selling pierogies and working as a server in a restaurant and I had heard somebody talk about an underground supper club. And so I went home and I googled that like what is this? And then I saw it was like people who were having like dinner parties in their homes, you know, and I thought, well, or they were more so at like undisclosed locations, but I thought I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. So um I um, reached back out to the press who had written about me and my pierogies and said, I'm going to do this thing. Are, are you interested in writing about it? And they said, yeah. So I had a, like a, a soft opening for um, uh, like doing an underground restaurant in my house. And I invited the pop sugar people because I knew that that had worked for the pierogies and and a couple other people and they came and they left and they wrote about it and that filled me up for a summer. Right. You know, and so then after after that, after I was booked for the summer, I quit my serving job and I was still making the pierogies on the side, but then just doing the underground um, full time and through word of mouth, like I didn't have to go back to any right. other job for at least two years. And, and through, so when people would come to the dinners, they would, you know, we, I would sit and talk to them at the end and they would ask me, you know, like, well, what's your goal with this? And I said, I want to have a restaurant. But at that time, um, some smaller restaurants had opened like in Chicago, like more of the fine dining boutique restaurants where it wasn't like millions of dollars poured into it or their kitchens were just, you know, pretty, pretty small. And it was really kind of humble. And there was this restaurant called Schwa, which is still around. And I had worked with one of the guys at, um, Trio a long time ago. And, um, and, uh, 
I said, you know, I kind of want to do something like that, you know, because I know he mm-hmm. opened with less than like $80,000. And so I eventually found some investors that were like, we can help you with this. And so, yeah, and that's that's how Elizabeth came about right. was, you know, yeah, I, all of that. I uh, like in that I hear the story of somebody who's slowly coming into their own and learning how to trust their instincts and their gut and finding their voice, right? Because Mm -hmm. somebody else could have had that success with pierogies and turned that into a big food company and there's no restaurant or underground. It's like, Mm -hmm. why bother with that? Like I have this thing here that people want, like how Mm -hmm. do I scale this and turn it into a huge thing that's in Mm -hmm. every grocery store across America? Mm -hmm. I mean, that could have been a path that you could have pursued. Oh yeah, no, that was... That would have been terrible. And <laughs> I um, well, remember there was like that, there was Mrs. T's pierogies. Yeah, Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. Like, I, I know I'm a triathlete, and they used to sponsor triathlon races, uh-huh. and th- those things would be at like every race that you oh, would yeah. go to. I, I remember that. Yeah. Um, th- well, the, but that's, yeah, I mean, that's the difference. That's like why I'm also like, not a great business person because most people would be like, oh, that's right. that's the thing that you got to do, you know, so you can make money. You're like, no, I'm going to have dinners <laughs> in my apartment yeah. for like 10 people. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds better, right? Yeah. But this is the creative, you know, person that you are, right? You, yeah. You're following your muse as opposed to what, you know, the logical, grounded, rational person would direct yeah. you to do. And there were, there were moments throughout my restaurant career where it was about like, okay, so the next thing you do, because you do want to eventually make money, right? And it's like, yeah, okay. Like, I don't want to keep struggling like this. And so we opened a a bakery, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, I didn't have a great business partner and things went south. And also that was me trying to run a second small business and do all of the things, which was just impossible. And then- That was bunny. Yeah. And Bunny is inside Kitsune, right? Well, that was the first version of Bunny, which was its own separate thing. Mm. Um, And we lasted four months. And then there was Kitsune, which came not long after that. And that was another attempt to, like, do something I loved and a food that I was really excited about. And, um, again, the same thing. Like, I I had plenty of great investors on a small scale, so it wasn't— any fault of uh, theirs, but we were undercapitalized and I was trying to do everything myself again. And Mm -hmm. when I was at one restaurant, one would start to, you know, lose their shit and vice versa. And so I, it just, for two and a half years, we were just constantly struggling to pick up the pieces, even though we had a lot of great reviews, like, you know, um, Esquire, Best New Restaurants, and GQ, Best New Restaurants, and Chicago Magazine, Best New Restaurants, and there was all this great press around it, but still trying to, you know, pay for things that, you know, were already, like, way spent with... Just spiraling in debt yeah. and trying to make payroll, like the the veneer or the, the public perception versus the, the you yeah, know, not-so-glamorous reality. reality of trying to run a business like that. But, yeah. I mean, first of all, you open up Kitsune, Japanese restaurant, you've never mm-hmm. been to Japan. Like, mm-hmm. what's, what is going on there? Um, I think that our focus, you know, I didn't even really think about that like at the time, like it (laughs) wasn't like that for me. It was more so like I was thinking about 
the excitement that we had behind making our own soys and kojis and working with ingredients that were from Japan, um, that we things that we kind of did at Elizabeth, but really amplifying it. So taking um, the techniques and applying it to everything that we had right. in from the Midwest and really just honoring that, um, you know, and not necessarily trying to um, recreate anything that was like Japanese, but still using the methods, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. So really just kind of honoring it in that way. Um, but... Yeah, I felt like it was, for me, just exciting to be pushing myself to study that. Um, and it didn't really mean having to have been there or lived there or anything like that. But I guess maybe from the outside world, people were like, what an idiot. That's my chef voice of other right. chefs. But it's, um, I don't, it doesn't seem, I mean, <laughs> from my perspective, it doesn't seem like that's going on because... What the public perceived was here you have Elizabeth, this rest, this beautiful restaurant named after your sister who passed mm -hmm. away. Um, and you're opening up these other restaurants and you're kind of this queen of what's being dubbed the new gatherer cuisine. Mm -hmm. Like you're at the forefront, like you're you're a face of like this new vanguard of mm -hmm. of of food. Um that it's emerging and becoming more and more popular. So from the outside perspective, looking in, it's like, wow, she's like this crazy entrepreneur and this brilliant creative chef and like all this mm -hmm. good stuff is happening. Um, so there had to be at least in the Venn diagram or in the timeline where everything seemed to be working pretty good. Yeah, well, probably, yeah, from, from the outside for sure. But I think a lot of you know, people's direction was like, you You have to find something that becomes uh, something that's scalable and a little bit more profitable so that you can continue to support the thing that's the creative one, mm -hmm. right, Elizabeth? But what ended up happening was that I think we also took Kitsune to be a little bit too cerebral as well, you know, and it ended up becoming this like honoring the Japanese cuisine and techniques and people really didn't care as much that we uh -huh. were like making our own kojis and our own misos and this really beautiful miso soup that we needed to sell for $15 to like make it make sense. And I mean, obviously there were the, were the people who cared, right? Like, you know, people who were having it that were experienced in food, whether it was, you know, different critics or whatever. But then there was also like just from a business standpoint, like this is not going to work, like the labor and yeah. the quality. Um, and so I was actually not a good business person in that way. Like, I think that the what I've learned um, with those two ventures is that anything I do is not really scalable um, because I care too much, like as we've already established about like control and especially like quality and things like that. And so where I've actually gone is to the opposite right. side now where I'm almost crawling back underground right. and we've even more than underground have gotten this like cabin, which is in the middle of nowhere 
you know, it's a very, uh, it, it's like if you, if you look at it on Google Maps, your little blue dot is in the middle of the Hiawatha National Forest, like smack dab right. in the Upper middle. Right, Upper Peninsula of yeah. Michigan, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. I'm originally from Michigan. I spent uh-huh. all my summers growing up, uh, you know, on Lake Michigan. My parents mm-hmm. had, a, had a place on the Leelanau Peninsula. So I'm very familiar with that mm-hmm. part of the world. And when you were describing Kitsune, I, I know that one of the sort of Achilles heels in that restaurant was location, right? There's mm-hmm. no, like no foot traffic in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, so I'm thinking, well, you have two, you have, a, you have a decision to make. Either you find a way to do what you're doing scalable, mm-hmm. or you kind of pull a Rene Redzepi and you mm-hmm. close shop Mm-hmm. And you go on a walkabout and you mm-hmm. try to figure out what's most important to you and mm-hmm. you take your time, you breathe. Mm-hmm. And milkweed, this, 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 this thing that you've opened in the Upper Peninsula is kind of your version of Rene traveling the world and doing his pop-ups. Mm-hmm. Like it's this new expression that is truly not scalable and mm-hmm. incredibly difficult to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but there's a beautiful story in that that mm-hmm. I think you know, speaks to your ethos and is very wedded in your childhood and why you're even doing this to begin with. Yeah, I I had, I think I learned a lot of that through the writing process. And it, a lot of it was me thinking about like, what am I going to do? Like what, you know, like really experiencing sometimes like the desperation of, like my my job is cooking and this is what it is, but how am I gonna do this, you know, for another 10 years um, at the level that I am in the restaurant because it's quite exhausting and uh-huh. I worry about, you know, my mental health and, and we wanna have a family and how do we find the time to actually do that? You know, how do we find the time as two women who have to work all the time to actually you know, have a family and be able to like really do things that we, that are way more important in life than, you know, working Mm -hmm. my ass off. But, um, and so uh, I think I'd spent the last like year and a half or two years really thinking about while writing the book, like, what do I want my, our, our life to look like? What do I want my life to look like? And how do we do that? considering the career that we're in. And so, um, so yeah, it's definitely scaling down was one, but like, how do we make that happen? And how do I get back to like, just really making the food make sense? Because I am thinking about the whole time, like one of the most depressing things is actually, um, you know, cooking this fancy food for people that can afford it and, um, or not, they're just really save up, but like the, the, the carbon footprint of the deliveries. And we try to get all our things from farmers and support them. But like, you know, even walking through Whole Foods and seeing the mounds and mounds of just beautiful produce and, um, you know, just thinking about, just everything that we do and trying to not waste it, but still the waste that's there. And it's just like, doesn't feel right. And I don't know how, you know, when we look at other restaurants that are trying to be green, who are serving, you know, 
a hundred people a day. Like I struggle with just serving 20 people a day and making sure that I'm being conscious enough. Right. You know, and the waste has to be unbelievable. Yeah. So how are other people doing this? And it just, it's so counterintuitive to actually how I want to live or how I want to be in the world. And so, um, doing something that's much smaller, but still doing what we do, and which is serving people and cooking for them. But also, you know, doing it this way at at Milkweed just fits, you know, like, uh, we're foraging for a lot of our stuff. But also, um, you know, our neighbor is, he comes over with these big lake trout that he catches in Lake Superior and mm-hmm. we make those for people and um, go to the farmer's market once a week and support the local farmers around there, which again is all things you can do in a restaurant, but it's just a way different. Um, it's a way for me, it feels so much well, better. Well, it's grounded. It's, you know, it's, it is, it is the gatherer cuisine. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, not just in name, but in practice, mm-hmm. like you're on, you have like 150 acres, yeah. right? And so yeah. you're foraging all these mushrooms and these berries and the, and the like, and gathering as much as that of that food from literally the property on mm-hmm. which this mm-hmm. restaurant sits, which is really an inn. Like people, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, you can serve 10 people, they stay mm-hmm. overnight, they mm-hmm. gotta get up there. And it's yeah. it's kind of like this, it's not just, it's not just, a dinner, this is an experience. Yeah, and people come on Fridays and we cook a little bit of a more casual three-course dinner. Then Saturday morning, I make them bread and toast. And then we have a big lunch that I cook over the fire. And then Saturday night, there's a multi-course dinner, which is some more of the whimsy, more like, you know, um, uh, planned out kind of constructed storytelling dinner. And then um, Sunday morning, there's a breakfast, and people have actually used it. Um, well, they want to obviously come to have all these meals that I cook for them, but they're going hiking and they're going down to the river and going swimming and trying to go fishing. I say trying because our dog George always he's a uh, Newfoundland and he jumps in the river, and uh-huh. so like all the fish are gone. And um, and um, so. But they're they're using it. They're coming, and then they're like, "Oh, next we're going to this place." So people are using it as a spot to come to, like really as an inn, as they go and take their travels right. further along. You know, the Great Lakes tour or the Upper Peninsula, and so um, it feels special to us. And and plus, like we get to connect with people who are have been our guests for a long time because some of the people that come to Elizabeth came to my house, you know, and they've still been with me through like this whole entire journey. Mm. And that's nice. Yeah. It's pretty incredible considering I'm like pretty introverted and like don't have a lot to say, but sometimes when I get talking, then I really get talking, Uh but, um, I feel, comfortable. <laughs> I feel comfortable with them because uh-huh. they've started to just kind of know that here's this shy person and I just approach her and I don't, you know, we just kind of enjoy each other's presence, you right. know, and, and, um, they, uh, they've gotten to know me and it feels really special. And some people have become our very close friends, um, just even recently over the years. And, um, but, um, 
And then we're meeting new people too, who, who have never come to Elizabeth, who have never done anything with us, but they lived in Appleton or they live in Canada and they heard about us. And this is much closer to get to than yeah. Chicago. And it sounds like a, a different experience. So, um, Right now, there's two people who came to the cabin who had never been to Elizabeth, who are from Chicago, who are watching our dog, our old English sheepdog, uh-huh. because they fell in love with her at the cabin. And they were like, we want to see her in Chicago. And so we're like, well, next time we go out of town. And so they're actually right. watching her. So. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So it's like this really awesome new experience and way to connect with people, which is introverted as I am, like, I still love people. Like, I'll always say I hate them because there's quite a lot about humanity. I don't know if it's called humanity at that point, but humans that I don't really like. But there's quite a bit about um, humans and human nature that I do love. And that is one of those um, things that I do is like really getting together with people like that and cooking for them and just kind of being able to share myself with them through cooking and us getting to know them. And um, so far it's been an incredible experience. So. Yeah. Well, one of the paths forward to healing what ails us is creating environments for people to get together and mm-hmm. enjoy food in mm-hmm. an intimate setting. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's an important part of, you know, bridging the gap or the, you know, communication divide that seems to have fractured us. Mm-hmm. You know, if we mm-hmm. can get a- across from a table and create a communal experience, um, mm-hmm. that seems like a good way to begin to solve these problems, does mm-hmm. it not? Yeah, I mean, even thinking about that on a very, like, a more specific level, like, we've already had people who are, like, you know, from, well, different cultures, but even, like, different political um, backgrounds, and they're all sitting at the table together, and I think everybody's smart enough not to bring up too much politics, but that they can actually all sit together and have an amazing time, Mm -hmm. you know, even... Um, our our neighbor, we know like we are in different, definitely, um, you know, places on that spectrum, but we are already connecting over food and love of the outdoors, yeah. you know, and it's like, yeah, we may have completely different um, like political ideologies, but we are still human and we can still be friends and we can still care about each other. And, you know, like coexist and, and yeah. be happy. Well, there's got to be some characters up there in the <laughs> Upper Peninsula, right? Yeah. Probably not a lot of married lesbian couples. <laughs> no. <you know? laughs> but Which, if everything yeah. goes to shit, you're, I think you're probably safe Co- up we're there. Close to Canada. And you can get to Canada quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, that um, was, we thought about that. And also, yeah, we our our neighbor actually uh, went to bat for us when some people started to figure out what we were doing up there because they were very concerned about uh-huh. their hunting camps and you know people coming through. And he reassured them that you know we were good people and it was probably better for us to have a B and B than another hunting camp mm-hmm. and you know people who weren't you know, also trying to hunt the same animals that they were. And, uh, 
you know, we're like, no. And also, you're a stu- you'll be a, uh, uh, a responsible, caring steward of the land. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that he explained that to them, and um, you know, then the subject was changed. But and it was never brought up uh, uh, our sexuality. But um, I think that that was part of something too that scared people a little bit, and they didn't know how they should be approaching us, but then he um, settled everybody, and uh-huh. we even had some of those neighbors that were supposedly mad at us come over and bring us some welcome gifts and stuff oh, like cool. that. So, yeah, and um, I was also able to tell him, to tell them, you know, if we're going to be there a lot more than they are through, like, the spring and summer months when they're not out there hunting and we're happy to go look at their cabins and make mm. sure that everything, you know, nothing's collapsed under the snow or, you know, whatever. And so, that yeah, exactly. We get to be a little bit stewards out there and watch other people's yeah. places and help them take care of it when they're not there. How how uh, far from the bridge is it? From the Mackinac Bridge? Yeah. I don't know because we don't come that way. Oh, you don't. No, oh, you come up the other. The, uh, on a nose. Yeah. Two hours. Two hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So but it's like two hours to like the beginning of our road, and then that's right. Like, you know, another hour. Oh, is it from that side? I know that from. It's not Wis- easy to get there. No, is the point. I know from Wis- the Wisconsin border. Um, once we cross over, it's about two and a half hours to get from there to our right, place right, right, right. and we're pretty much right in the middle so it's probably yeah it's probably similar from the other end as well but um but you're closed now until spring yeah and then what you open june through august or something no we actually next year we're going to be mid may through mid mid october uh, so a full six months so and are you taking reservations now for that yeah or? we're like uh half sold out oh you are wow or maybe a little bit more than uh. that um, I sent my dad, my, my parents live in Washington, D.C., and I sent uh-huh. him the Washington Post article uh-huh. about you uh-huh. and Milkweed, and my dad was all about it. Uh-huh. He was like, I need to, to tell her I need to go to this place. <laughs> yeah. So you can look forward to my parents <laughs> in right. case you sell out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's been it's been awesome. We've even had people who live in the Upper Peninsula come and actually say, like, wow, this is an, an incredible spot because even some of their areas like don't you ha- you have to when you're driving up you do go the elevation becomes a little bit higher but it's extremely gradual and once you get to our place we're on the top mm. of like a tiny mountain but when you're looking out you can see like um that we're pretty much up there and it's just a beautiful landscape because we're right butted up to the, we're in the Hiawatha, but there's also some private areas that are are being developed by loggers. But then when you get to our property, it's um, butted up against the Hiawatha where actually nobody's going to be logging. And so there's just so much. Right. So like, it's just covered in trees. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, I can't help but kind of reflect your career against the trajectory of of what Renee is doing with Noma, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if you know this, but Je- I joined Jeff this past summer and went to Noma and had dinner uh-huh. there and yeah, had that whole listened. experience. Uh-huh. Oh, you listen to that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, have you for 
you obviously you know Renee gave, gave you a blurb for your book, yeah. and he's the other, you know, the most renowned kind of foraging oriented chef, right? Um, yeah, we um, I've had dinner there twice oh, because have, I've uh-huh. been to Mad twice, oh, so right, right, 2014, 2016, and then um. Anna and I went there for Noma, Mexico. So we went down to Tulum uh, and I staged for a day in the kitchen and um and then we had dinner and and uh yeah, it's it's incredible. That was the Tulum, Mexico uh Noma experience was probably one of my best meals ever. Right. And Jeff was there for that too, I think. Yeah, we yeah. We, we had just missed each other. Um but yeah, uh-huh. I know he went down there for that too. So I did kind of, in preparation for going there, I did a little bit of a deep dive on this whole kind of foraging culture and learned what I thought. So I thought I kind of knew what was going on when mm-hmm. I arrived. Uh, did, when you went to Noma, was it the, the current incarnation of that no, restaurant? No, it was still um, in their old location. Yeah. So I haven't been to any of the new menus. It's It's pretty crazy, like... I knew it was gonna be this extraordinary restaurant, but what I didn't anticipate was that he's literally, it's almost like a mini university. Like it's Mm -hmm. a compound with like several (laughs) test kitchens and like multiple buildings. And there had to be 30 or 40 young people working in the kitchen to serve like less than that. I don't know, 40 people or something like that. Um, And I got to meet David Zilber, his fermentation guy Mm -hmm. and get to know him a little bit. And and I walked away from that experience realizing like, I didn't know anything about mm-hmm. what it is that he does. Um, but a couple of things that I noticed is he's really learned how to create a culture and and um, cultivate a team because mm-hmm. he's the executive chef. Like he's not in there preparing the meals, like he's the, he's the conductor of this mm-hmm. amazing orchestra, but he's running like this massive operation. Mm-hmm. In contrast, I see, you know, I think that potential, you know, reality exists for you as well. And to see Mm -hmm. you kind of go in a different direction after, Mm -hmm. you know, having had a similar kind of reboot experience Mm -hmm. that he had to go small and keep it intimate. Yeah, that's so everything they do, then, yeah, pretty much reduce it down to one. And Anna definitely Uh helping me because we were on out foraging this summer and just, you know, with the amount of time it takes to collect what we collect to even just serve two people and to prepare it and clean it and save it and make sure everything's good is like, wow. When I think about how they do it, like that's why they need so many people, you know, and because if you want to really serve that kind of thing and be stewards of the land in a way, but then also... Like, I don't know how they do it for, you know, 40 people at lunch or if they have two services. Like, I'm I'm absolutely still baffled, even with that many people in the kitchen. It's really incredible. It's an incredible feat because, um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought about it and um, I think it's different when you have like the the status that he has and the ability to have the teams that he's constructed. And I know that they've had their moments with struggling financially and, and um, every restaurant does no matter if you're the best restaurant in the world or, you know, nowhere on any of those maps. But, um, 
you know, that I feel like there's a lot of resources there, which I don't know if I could ever get. But now that I know that I would never want, because even with Kitsune, when I was making the decisions to close that, I felt like I had to try every single thing possible first before I could go back to our investors and say, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was to the point of madness because I was losing their money. And for a lot of them, um, they were probably investing amounts that they knew that they could afford to lose. But for me, it was something different. And I was really just thinking about them because I didn't care how that reflected on my ego. Like, I am so happy that restaurant's gone. You know, and I didn't care if it looked like I had failed because... I really didn't feel like I did. It didn't feel like a failure. It felt like a really part of like just an economic situation that was not only like in our climate, but also who I was as a person, you know, not willing to make sacrifices to shop at Cisco or, you know, companies where I couldn't look at the the product and think this is exceptional. So... But yeah, they have a whole different, uh, I really admire uh, him and his like, the way that they think about food Mm -hmm. and, you know, everything, because I felt really connected to that restaurant when I first heard about them in 2010 or 2011. So well, after they were already established and after they were established with, you know, being a foraging restaurant rather than what they were before. And I obviously felt really connected to that because that was the same place that I was coming from with my cooking. Because when I started, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to go with what I know, you know, which is being very local and very seasonal and foraging and all of that. And um, so have always really, really admired them. And I think that there's not a single thing, you know, there's Renee, if you see his food, you know, you'll have seen like probably a hundred other chefs somehow, um, you know, been inspired by it in one way or another. They know my diaspora. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, and even he will say like, well, you know, and his food comes from somewhere else that it was Uh inspired by, you know. Um, But that's all art. Yeah, and they do do a lot of things that I think, I I don't know who else is, you know, making egg yolk mold pies. (laughs) So that might be something brand new to them. I don't, were you having the mold menu? Well, they made sure that, that, uh, I went for the Plant Kingdom menu and Uh they, they like went out of their way to make sure. I mean, it was essentially ninety five percent vegan as uh-huh. it is, but they went the extra percent uh-huh. to make sure that everything that I had was totally vegan. Right? Yeah, which was amazing awesome. in and of itself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But yeah, I had the mold pie, the vegan uh-huh. version of that, and like everything. I mean, it was it was crazy. Uh-huh. I mean, I thought like, oh, this will be an amazing experience, and I just right. couldn't believe like what I was eating. Like uh-huh. it was just so different than anything I could have. Um, imagined or anticipated. Yeah, yeah. I'm re- I'm really interested in in that because um, I had heard one of my my chefs was telling me about a chef she worked for in um, uh, 
Chile, and they were trying to inoculate vegetables so that it kind of grew like that cheese, almost camembert mm. mold mm-hmm. on it. And then I, uh, I don't know if they accomplished it or what, but um, I was like, whoa, like that's crazy. And I started to think like on a, on a scientific level, how that would work. And then I saw that Noma was like l- figuring this out and I don't know how, how they do it, but um I just kept thinking like, wow, I really want to see what that tastes like because that's, you know, I think that that's the curiosity and the thing that is what they're doing that's so magical is that, you know, they're really reverting to, um, you know, nothing that's new, you know, making kojis and making misos and fermenting and all this stuff that has been around forever, but then creating new flavors out of that. And, you know, so that... um, well, it's Zilber. I mean, that guy is on the yeah. cutting edge of that world. Yeah. And he has, I mean, you studied chemistry. He's mm-hmm. got an entire lab yeah. <laughs> devoted to trying to figure this stuff out. And we did a tour. Um, I have it yeah. like as a highlight on my Instagram stories. You could check, like Renee gave us a whole tour before dinner. Uh-huh. Um, but we go through the fermentation lab and go into the the, um, the walk-in refrigerator and there's this giant you know, gigantic mason jars with uh-huh. different fermentations of everything you can possibly imagine in mm-hmm. there where they're just testing everything, trying to come right. up with new flavors that right. have never been discovered before. Yeah, yeah I, d- I don't have a fermentation lab, but I have a couple yeah, I don't think anybody else does. Cabinets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this goes back to, you know, what you learned with your mom in the yeah, farmhouse. And usually like you've been like, canning since you were a kid. Yeah, sometimes ours is like, I don't I grew this weird thing. It doesn't look like it's bad. Okay, let's pinch off a little piece and taste right. it. Sure, we should eat this. <laughs> like end up in the hospital, you know? Yeah. I don't know how they figure out like what's safe and what's you know going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it. Um, you know, they. I've heard that if it's not like black mold and if it's not green and if it's not fuzzy, then it should uh-huh. be okay. But, right. Um, like I remember there was one thing they served, um, what was it? It was, a, maybe it was the mold pie. Like it was something that if I had opened up my refrigerator and saw it in the pantry, yeah. I would throw it out. And there's like, well, you can't eat that. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. There, there's, it's just incredible. And his food is so beautiful and, and you really know, is. it's really, really inspiring. And so... Yeah, I think a lot of people are, uh, you know, just extremely attracted to that. And a lot of chefs, you know, it's, yeah, it's incredible to see what they do and the way that he pushes the food movement. And I think, uh, I mean, 10 years ago, like people were talking about fermentation for sure, but not on the level that they are now. And even like the same people, like if we're just using Instagram or Twitter as a source, like the same people that I would see, you know, that I've been following for a couple of years now are like, I did this Koji thing and Mm -hmm. this mold thing and this other thing, you know? And so everybody does really kind of, he, I, I think that, He's the one who is like, okay, we're going to do this next. And then, you know, slowly everybody else is doing it. These trends, I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, let's just check our privilege. Like, you know, very few people get to have the opportunity of going to a place like Noma or Mm -hmm. the ability to go to the Upper Peninsula and Mm -hmm. experience what you're creating. These are very privileged experiences. But 
they are touchstones culturally that that mm-hmm. then you know sort of find their way into the you know the mainstream discussion and dialogue and practices of cuisine. Well, yeah, I think Chef, uh, Chef Jeff was talking about that a young lady who um, is in I want to say Austin, Texas, but I'm not sure who is doing a lot of that. Um, he he was talking about her on the Dave Ching podcast. I can't remember her name right now, but you know, it's now all of these kind of things, but it's coming in a paper boat, you know, right. like just like, Oh, I know very, what you're talking about. I think he talked about that. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the name of that restaurant though. What's Petra. Petra. Oh yeah, um, yeah. 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 I think he wrote about her as well. Um, I, it might be Nashville. I can't remember what city oh, it is, but yeah, it was, I can't remember. Or, um, somewhere in the Southeast. I I can't remember. Um, But anyway, yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So it does, it does eventually, yeah. Translate in, into a little bit for everybody, but um, I, I don't know. I think that, um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Oftentimes I find myself, you know, when I get really excited about a lot of these different projects, one, wanting to teach myself it. And it's like, well, will I use it or not? I don't know. It just depends if I can apply it. But of course I want to learn, which, you know, keeps me um, sharp as a chef, which I think is, and and Jeff talked about this in his book too, like the curiosity mm-hmm. of Renee, you know, and I feel like I have that same curiosity and and I did as a child too, which I think made sense. Like, you know, growing up around things that we were collecting and then everything be- became like, well, can I eat this? And can I eat this? And, you know, um, so that implanted that into me, that the curiosity. But, um, you know, it drives me to want to learn how to do it. But then I find that I want to check myself too and be like, do, all right, is this necessary? Do I need to put this in the food? Does everything need to be like on the plate, dry age, koji fermented, and also misoed and also salt fermented? Like does every, you know, I don't think like there's mm. becomes a, a place where it's like, okay, we have what, to What like, part of that is ego versus what's actually serving? Yeah, the, like the does it even make sense? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's like cool and it's fun, but then where does where do I have to draw the line? And there became a point too where, um, like a year ago, I said to my chef, "Okay, like, let's do a menu where we don't ser- we only serve things actually on plates and in bowls, and like remove the twigs and the moss and the rocks and the shells, you know, and like uh-huh. just make sure everything's on a plate." Um, so yeah, I go through those moments too, because you, it's very easy to get caught up in seeing beautiful things and then being like, Oh, I want to, you know, serve something on a rock and serve something on some moss. And, um, just like, when does that actually make sense? And when doesn't it, you know, like now being at milkweed, it almost makes zero sense at my restaurant to serve things on moss, but at milkweed, it makes complete Mm. sense to serve Mm -hmm. things on moss, even though. We haven't served too much on moss. Right. Well, it's remaining. It's 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 trying to root yourself in that childlike state mm-hmm. and staying there. Right. Mm-hmm. There's purity to that, and mm-hmm. and there is this full circle thing about you. Kind of, you know you 
you know, there's a there's a part in the book where you lament the loss of of the farmhouse and what that meant to you, and 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 that was more kind of impactful on you than even your parents, you know, uh, the the strife in your your parents' marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's this like kind of coming home, like rooting mm-hmm. yourself in in what got you into this to begin with, mm-hmm. and it seems like that provides this beautiful kind of robust tableau for you to mm-hmm. really, in a tactile way, like connect with that childlike state that yeah. allows you to create on that level. There, Yeah, there was a couple years ago where I was just feeling really depressed all the time. And uh, what I would think about at night when I was laying in bed was how badly I wanted to feel like a kid again, like how badly I wanted to go back to that feeling like the child that mm-hmm. I used to feel like. And I think that was a big part of, you know, writing my book, too. When I was writing that early childhood section, um, I was remembering just kind of like the innocence and, you know, just how comforted I felt in that house. And so to feel better, I would tell myself at night, like, I'm going to buy that house back someday. I'm going to get that house Uh back. And I thought that that was going to, like cure me being able to go back there and create a life there. But um, instead it became like, how can I just create that atmosphere anyways? You know, how can I get back there in the way that I need to um, now in obviously in a way that makes sense. And I think that that's how milkweed like, you know, came was a lot of that like really thinking like how do I want to feel and where do I want to go from here you know so that was a big part of it because then like a year or so later I think well maybe like six months later I met Anna and then about a year or so later that's when I started looking like at cabins and things like that and in off the grid and like wow where where could we actually go and then sort of, sort of yeah. obsessing about it. Well, healthier emotionally than trying to buy the old farmhouse and, and, yeah. and try to like recreate the past <laughs> in a healthier way. Like that's probably not a good idea. Yeah. You know? But yeah, I think it, so, you know, like a big part of what I've done or what I do is, you know, like really say like, okay, this is what I'm going to do and then do it, like figure out how I can do the things, which a lot to a lot of people might seem like nonsense at the time. Even when we got, we're getting close to actually opening this summer for milkweed, I had a couple like realizations where I would be like, oh my God, this is fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we doing? Um, but it's like, well, I guess we're doing right. it. So location, location, location. <laughs> yeah, you're just like yeah. going like let's find the most remote, hardest place to get to in America yeah. and open a restaurant there for ten people only. Yeah. And I didn't even <laughs> go there first. Yeah. Right. Like I bought it without actually having visited the location. Really? Yeah. And then the first time I drove there, uh, I couldn't even get through, which was in early April. And then was there any structure on the property? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the whole the whole place was there. Like there uh-huh. was it was just we hadn't seen it in person. So right. uh, yeah, That's a leap like of faith. Yeah, and it was really complicated to get to. Um and so after I finally got there, I came home and told Anna, I was like, I don't know how we're going to get people back there. 
but uh, we're going to figure it out somehow. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, I think it's working. People are interested in it. Mm-hmm. And looking back, it's one of those things where it, it appears that all the, all the dominoes are perfectly lined up to bring you to this place. Yeah. Um, does it, f- like, how does that color how you think about destiny and fate? Does it feel like this is your destiny, that you were fated to do this or? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that there's still like a lot to come because, you know, I, we will figure this out and see how it works for us and, and work out the kinks. And, you know, maybe we realize that the, in 2021, we don't want to do it for six months out of the year. Maybe, you know, um, we talk a lot about maybe um, being able to be, what are they called? Winter birds or summer birds? Like we're already snowbirds. Snow we're already planning our retirement. Yeah. So like we go to milkweed when it's warm during the summer months. And then maybe we find some place in like New Mexico that's like an old, you know, Route 66 motel that has 10 rooms and then we create an in there yeah. as well and we go there during the winter and um I don't know we got a bunch of ideas um she would like to maybe raise a family out in this area and I was like I don't know what I'm gonna do for work because I'm definitely not moving to LA and opening a restaurant <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. that sounds like the right thing for you no so I I don't know I feel like we're still really young in that way and and thinking about like well what do we do when we grow up you know Maybe don't grow up. (laughs) It's the childlike nature in you that allows you to do what you do. Yeah. So hold on to that. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what. But uh, right now, at least, it feels good. And I actually feel refreshed being back at Elizabeth. And um, we've kind of even scaled that back a little bit. And I have somebody in the office now doing a lot of my office work and um, so we've restructured in a way that feels good. Um, yeah, I'm, you hired a, a chef when you were up at yeah. Milkweed, right? But are you going to be back? In oh there yeah, now no. Now he's he he was done at the end of August, and now I've been back in the kitchen managing and uh, actually full time. Which so instead of having a kitchen boss, I have a a boss in the office, which allows me to be the boss back in the kitchen. And so, I feel like we're always evolving in that kind of way. But I feel, I've, I feel good about it. Um, I probably have had a lot less complaints lately about my job and being back in the kitchen than I did a year ago, uh-huh. you know, before I was like, I'm never going back there. Can you stay um, away from the dishwasher? <laughs> no, I still been washing the dishes, <laughs> but. This is but, the lesson I think we need you yeah, to learn. But, but uh, yeah, it's been feeling, feeling good. I feel a little bit more rejuvenated, so. Well, good. Um, yeah. Let's land this plane. I mean, I think the the final thing that I think would be kind of cool to leave people with is what, um, like, what is it that you want? Maybe you haven't even thought about this, but like, what is it that you would like people to take away from your story and this book? Uh, I I have thought about it because um, I've I've gotten that question, you know, like, who is this book for? And I think it's for everybody. And I think what people can take away from it is that, like, no matter what circumstance you're in, or if there's something out there you think that 
you want to do but think you can't do, like you have to erase that because that was still a guiding principle for me is like that friend that I mentioned in the book that always said like, what are you waiting for? Permission. And it's like, you don't need it. Just like whatever you want to do, like do it, set the intention and then take all the steps for it. And even if you're told no along the way, like keep trying because all my first books that I wrote were rejected. Uh, every time I talked about the restaurant I wanted to have, somebody told me no, that I couldn't do mm-hmm. it. And here I am having a restaurant, having that property in the middle of nowhere, which people told me was never going to happen, and also having a book that was published. So, right. You know, and the book was many years, right? Like you, you the, the, the editor or the publisher that published it initially reached out to you, but then you kind of danced with a major publisher for a while and ultimately mm-hmm. went back, right? Like mm-hmm. there was many years oh, of yeah. you working He approached on this. me in 2015. I, I wrote for about a year. Then I escaped for about a year and, and worked with a agent and that fell flat on its nose. And then I went back to him. Uh-huh. So Yeah, it's a story of perseverance and and individuality and Mm -hmm. survival and identity. It's really quite an accomplishment. It's a beautiful book. Um, I highly suggest everybody pick up Burn the Place. Uh, In the meantime, maybe read the New Yorker article about the book, which is, that's like super cool too. We didn't even talk about that. Like who gets, who gets their book written about in the New Yorker? Like that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much just famous people and then me. (laughs) (laughs) They called it brutal and luminous. They used all these like really cool adjectives for it. Yeah. And a lot of people like to use the term gothic around it Mm -hmm. too. So I think it has a lot of that, um, you know. There's aspects of it that reminded me of Just Kids, Patti Mm -hmm. Smith's book. I mean, it's a very different Uh, story. Yeah. You would love that book. Um, But there's something very like the singularity of the voice because your voice is so unique mm-hmm. and hers is as well. And like just leaning into that as mm-hmm. opposed to trying to, you know, adapt to some convention. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that I went back to my small publisher because the agent was actually going to have me ghostwritten by somebody. And oh, that also- that would have been a disaster. Yeah. So it would not have, you know, and also insisted that I write the book linearly. I can't even say the word. Yeah, Yeah. that. (laughs) Do that. Well, I'm glad you wrote it the way that you wrote it. Yeah. Um, It's a huge accomplishment and well done. And you seem happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So best of luck to you. Thank you. And come back and talk to me again sometime. Okay. And I want to come to your restaurant. Yeah. And and also with your parents to milkweed. Yeah, I'll make sure. (laughs) We'll be in touch on that. Um, Cool. So uh, for everybody listening out there, what's the best way to connect with you? Oh, best way is probably through Instagram or Twitter. So uh, I think our Instagram is Elizabeth Restaurant underscore and underscore co. And then um, Twitter is at Elizabeth Rest. Uh-huh. You have a personal Twitter, but you haven't updated it since like 2016. No, yeah, it's, I don't use that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. And pick up Burn mm-hmm. the Place. You won't regret it. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Peace. Forging mushrooms. <laughs> 
All right, we did that pretty great, that Ileana. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Please hit her up on the socials and let her know what you thought of today's conversation. She is at Elizabeth Rest, R-E-S-T, on Twitter and at Elizabeth Restaurant underscore and underscore co on Instagram. And be sure to check out the show notes on the episode page to learn more. And don't forget to check out her book, Burn the Place. It really is great. It's a wonderful memoir. I encourage all of you guys to check it out. If you'd like to support our work here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on the show on Apple Podcasts or and Spotify for all you Android users and uh, YouTube for the visually inclined. You can share the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media. I love seeing all the screen grabs on Instagram. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on today's show, Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing and editing the visual version of today's show. Jessica Miranda for graphics, Allie Rogers for portraits, DK for advertiser relationships and theme music by Analemma. Appreciate all of you. Thanks for the love. I will see you back here soon, shortly with CEO and founder of Beauty Counter, Greg Renfrew. It's a great one. Here's a clip to take you out. Until then, peace, plants, namaste. One and a half pages of legislation that govern an $80 billion industry that still allow for chemicals of concern that cause cancer, linked to endocrine disruption, all those things, neurotoxicity. Those chemicals are in our products and the government has not taken action yeah. on a federal level. You know, the sperm count um, in the U.S. is down 50% right. over the last 25 years. And, you know, about 40% of male sperm is now defective. So if we don't think it's impacting men, it's absolutely impacting. It's impacting of all of us. And so, you know, every one of us needs to be focused on our bodies and our safety and hopefully, you know, just knowing a little bit more. Uh, and I also think that, you know, I say that our, the product we sell is beauty, but we're trying to sell a clean lifestyle, you know, a lifestyle that you live, Rich. And I think that just those little things like just wash your floors with water and vinegar, take your shoes off at the door, you know, get rid of the plastic containers over time. Don't use nonstick yeah. pans. I mean, there's some basic things that can make a difference in your life right out of the gate.